Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be examining the debate between Bob Enyart and James White. Bob Enyart is a defender of open theism. If you check our spectrum of open theism, we have Bob Enyart listed way to the right because Bob Enyart is interested in biblical truths, wherever those truths may take him. James White, on the other hand, is a Calvinist, and uh, he's a pretty well-known Calvinist. He, he's got quite a following. This debate is a debate from 2014, and it took place in Colorado, and it was a live debate. And I don't think James White thinks he won this debate. There was some issues concerning the nature of the Trinity, the nature of God becoming flesh, and... Uh, James White got stuck up on that, and uh, there was some after-debate fallout where James White was trying to claim that he didn't say what he did say and stuff like that. And We got various articles on GodIsOpen.com that talks about the intellectual dishonesty within the White camp concerning these issues. My big takeaway, what I got from that entire issue, was uh, in writing a debate between me and this uh, administrator of James White's Facebook page, and he just refused to answer the question, was the human part of Jesus divine? He just won't answer the question. He can't say yes or no and then add an explanation. He just didn't want to answer the question. He just said, oh, you don't understand the hypostatic union. Well, yeah, well, just answer the question. He wouldn't do it. Calvinists don't answer questions. And you really see that in this debate. James White, he does not answer questions. And these are simple questions, and questions really undermine Calvinism, so they don't like answering them. So the purpose of this podcast today, I'm going to go through James White's questions, and I'm going to answer them one after the other, because I don't think Bob Enyart did too good of a job either answering these questions or following up against uh, James White's main points. James White also drops all of Bob Enyart's opening arguments as well, and Bob Enyart doesn't use his questions to follow up on those arguments. So there's a lot of missed opportunities in this debate. I do recommend this debate though, and I especially recommend Bob Enyard's opening argument. So everyone should go and listen to that when they have time, especially for those who are not open theists. It really gives a good overview of open theistic evidence. But here are James White's questions to Bob Enyart, and I'm going to be answering in the place of Bob Enyart my own answers, and my answers might be a little bit more drawn out than Bob Enyart's were. When people are allowed to answer a question and then give an explanation, then you could kind of undermine the trap that's trying to be set for you. Did God know that you would exist when he created the world? No, God did not know that I would exist, or most people on earth, that they would exist when he created the world. We see an instance in Genesis 6-6 where God is looking down from heaven and he sees man on earth. And man has become wicked. It is to such an extent that he never expected that. And so what does God say? And it says the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So God is regretting that he had made man. That's not something you do if you expect these people to exist and do everything that they're supposed to do. And then Genesis 6-7 follows up and says, This is a quote by Yahweh, by God, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So you see a deep regret in God. And this is not a regret over man's actions, but God's own actions in creating man. And you don't get stuff like that. And there's plenty of stories in the Bible just like this. You don't get this unless God just doesn't know 
what's going to happen and who's going to exist and what they're going to do. Did God know that sin would exist when he created the world? As we see from the Genesis 6-6 example, as we see from the Exodus 32 example with Israel, as we see from the 1 Samuel 15 example with King Saul, there's always a regret in God. He's seen this sin that he never expected. And often God doesn't expect sin, and then it does happen. But if your question, if that's a saying, did God conceive that there would be, ever be any type of sin in any way whatsoever, well, maybe... Everyone has the potential to sin. It really wouldn't be outside the realm of possibilities. But the Bible doesn't take a definitive stance on this question, and so we probably shouldn't either. We should stop our speculation from getting into absolutes. Why do you need to absolutely question whether or not God knew sin was from the beginning of the earth? Because, because you're looking for a Messiah figure that you think is a necessary part of history? Well, Jesus himself didn't think that he was a necessary part of history, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. So you just identified the cross as a contingency plan, is that correct? Absolutely, that is correct. Jesus saw the cross as a contingency plan himself. He thought, even after people had sinned in the Old and New Testament, Jesus thought that the crucifixion did not have to happen. And so we get instances such as in Matthew 26, and Jesus is praying, and he's praying to God, and he's trying to talk to God and commune with God, something that's impossible in Calvinism, where everything has to have the same will if it's divine, something like that. But in Matthew 26, he is praying to God, and he says, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what Jesus is saying here is, you know, I think it might be possible that I don't have to die on the cross. He wasn't in this fatalistic mindset that Calvinists are, that from the beginning of time, Christ had to die on the cross. That wasn't Jesus' mindset. Jesus was not a Calvinist. He puts in a disclaimer. He says, not my will, but yours be done. What is he doing with that sentence? He's saying, God, I know you have some plans, and I know that you would listen to me if I gave you alternative plans. But I really want to do your plans if there's an option. You know, I just want to get some sort of way that we could both be happy and have both our wills done at the same time. But if not, you know, I'm okay with that as well. We also understand this within the book of John. In the book of John, Jesus in John 10:17 says, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again, this command I have received from my Father. And so Jesus is saying, I have volition, and I'm doing this stuff willingly. And, you know, it, not, it might not even be something that I want to do, but no one's forcing this on me, and I could do otherwise. Lastly, and, you know, there's plenty of evidence in the Bible that people could choose to defy God, even God's strong plans. And Jesus tells Peter, Peter draws his sword to defend Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what Jesus says to him, and he says, put your sword away, because, you know what, if I wanted to, I could pray to my father, and he would provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. So he's saying, that is a possibility. If I didn't want to go through with this, I wouldn't have to. To Jesus, the crucifixion, the cross, it was not a fixed event. And so, yeah, in a way, it is a contingency plan. It was a contingency plan that didn't even have to occur. And so when God created, he already had the contingency plan, or did this come about 
after Adam's fall. The Bible's really silent on this issue, and the proof text that the Calvinists turn to to try to prove these things, 1 Peter 1.20, Indeed, he was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but he was manifest in these last times for you. A few things of note. Does that verse talk at all about the cross? What is foreordained? And what sense is Peter using this? Is he using it like God was going to send a redemptive lamb for the sins of all mankind? Or could it be something else? It could definitely be something else. It could be God always intended to make all our bodies spiritual bodies, immortal bodies. It could be that he wanted to build a people in him through a Messiah figure. And you see Messiah figures in the Old Testament all the time. It could be that, uh, you know, the foundation of the world, there's arguments out there that say that that's referring to after the downfall of Adam and Eve. So there's plenty of possibilities that don't have to resort to Calvinism. And that might not even be the proof text that James White has in mind. But the thing about proof texts is, what are the proof texts proving? To what extent can these proof texts prove what the people claim that the proof text proves? And there's nothing that, that says that the cross was foreordained since time eternal. Probably the most rational position is turning to Genesis 1 and seeing that God wanted to create man in his image. So yeah, since before the foundation of the world, God wanted some other creature that's in his image with whom to commune. So absolutely you could say before the foundation of the world, God wanted a special people to himself to commune with. You know, that's, that's not outside the realm of possibilities. But given, do, do you agree with Dr. Sanders that God cannot know what a free creature will do without sacrificing that creature's freedom? Yes, Sanders often likes to engage in a lot of unwarranted theological speculation. I know a lot about what people are going to do before they do it. You know, I'm predicting things all the time, and those things are coming true. This is knowledge that I have as a person. So my knowledge of what people are going to do, if I know that if I get up and start at my little boy, he's going to run away from tickles, you know, I know that's going to happen. And uh, that doesn't violate his free will in any sense of the way. Does everyone remember that time when Abraham violated everyone's free will? In Genesis uh, 12:11, he's about to enter Egypt, and he says to his wife, he says, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, and they will let you live. Oh no, Abraham just violated everyone's free wills. No, it doesn't really work like that. If God cannot violate someone's will, can we violate God's will? Calvinists really have this weird obsession with wills, and you see this especially like in Augustine and overcoming desires, and, and he who has the strongest will always wins, and so God's will is the strongest, and if anyone has their will succeed over God's will, then God's not God anymore. Weird concepts like that. But wills don't work like that. Like God, he takes Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, he turns him into a wild beast in order to humble him. You know, that's not violating someone's free will. It's not just making him not able to have a will anymore. If that was the case, like every time a cop arrests someone and throws them in jail, they're just violating their free will. And then every time I, like, grab someone or tackle my kids and just hold them down and tickle them, I'm, I'm violating their will. No, it doesn't work like that. It's just, there's no violation of free will. There's no violation of volitional choice in the person. You know... These concepts that Calvinists claim are concepts, they're just really foreign to normal human action. So here's what I contend. No one can violate anyone else's will. 
Even if you have like nano robots that go and take over a person's body and force their fingers to pull triggers to kill people and stuff like that, you know, the sci-fi stuff. You know, that's not even a violation of their will because you're just overriding their body, which it's not overriding their will. It does nothing to them mentally. When I was in college, I got a hold of all these like hypnotism manuals. And one theme that I saw within these hypnotism manuals is they all said you cannot hypnotize people to do something that they don't want to do or they're morally opposed to. And I saw this firsthand when I was in Vegas when one of my friends was hypnotized. He just would not do some of the things that the hypnotist was trying to make him do. So James White is all obsessed with this violation of will. What does it even mean to violate someone's will? Is that even a concept? Is that even intelligible? I don't think so. When God restrains men from committing evil, is he violating their wills? I kind of answered this one already. No, like if a cop, if he takes a criminal and throws him in jail, he's not restraining his will. He's, he's, he's limiting that person's freedom of movement. But like gravity not letting me jump like over seven feet in the air, that's not restraining my will, even though I'd love to zoom around. My will is that I could fly freely through the air. Oh no, gravity is so oppressive of my will. But if God restrains evil, then how is that not a violation of the person's will? It and Bob Enyart answers James White much in the same way that I do. And James White just does not get it. He doesn't understand he keeps pressing the point. It's like, are you even rational, James White? I don't think he is. He's stuck in this Calvinist mindset, this Calvinist mentality, where the world operates according to these very arbitrary and very Gnostic principles, where, you know, the wills are always clashing, and the strongest will wins, and perfect being theology, and all that weird nonsense that just has no counterpart in our day-to-day -day experience and how we actually function in the real world. I'm taking all bets that uh, James White will continue with this line of will arguments against uh, future open theists, and Bob Enyart's answer directly to him explaining how wills operate and how James White's understanding of how wills operate is uh, totally irrational. James White's going to still take these same questions, these same arguments, and present them to the very next speaker because he is intellectually dishonest. And Isaiah 41 we hear, tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Could you please explain uh, how it is that God can give this challenge? And could you tell us how God can fulfill this challenge himself in an open theist universe? Why, thank you, James White. I would be happy to. I actually have an entire podcast going over the first part of Deutero Isaiah and talking about what the context is and what the prophet's trying to communicate to Israel. In the text, this is not like a trivia contest. God's not walking up to other gods and saying, Ooh, I know more than you. I know Jeopardy. You know, I, I could beat Jeopardy and uh, beat all you guys at all these trivia contests. That's not what is happening in the text. This is a power contest. And the power contest is this. The prophet has to say what's going to happen. Then the god has to do what's going to happen. And then after the fact, then you evaluate whether or not that god actually did that thing. And the way that you know that the God did that thing is that God said that he was going to do that thing. And so what was happening was all these false prophets, all these false gods, were saying all sorts of things that their God did, but they didn't have any validation of that through prior statements that their God were, was going to go do those things. 
before those things actually happen. So this context, this is all about power, and it's not at all about knowledge. And we got to remember, the open theist take of Isaiah is the only one that works with other texts in the Bible, like Jonah. In Jonah, God declares what he is going to do. He says, I will destroy Nineveh in 40 days. And there's no conditionality attached to it. These are the Assyrians. They don't even know the character of Yahweh. They don't even know his name. And he says, I'm going to destroy you guys. And then they repent, and then it doesn't happen. Does that work with how James White is wanting to take the Isaiah text where everything is planned out and said well in advance of all future events and everything's known in detail? No, it only works in a dynamic sense. But that's all common sense. And so in Jeremiah 18, it says explicitly, if God declares against a nation, if that nation turns from what they're doing, God will not do what he said he would do to that nation, and he will not do what he thought to do to that nation. Isaiah is not in conflict with Jeremiah. Isaiah is not in conflict with Jonah. Isaiah understands this dynamic process, but, you know, how often do people repent when they should repent? Hardly ever. And so God can declare, and Nineveh would have been an example that Isaiah could have drawn upon if they didn't repent. God would have said, I will destroy you in 40 days, they don't repent, and then they get destroyed. And he could go in and say, you know, here it was said before it happened, and uh, then they were destroyed. This is solid evidence that their destruction was the hand of God. But no rational person is going to come to that text and say, oh, look, God was just like super lying because he said it would happen. And uh, there was no conditionalities, there was no hint of repentance or anything like that. And then it just didn't happen. This was a declared, time-specific statement about the future that did not come to pass. A rational person, they wouldn't even consider that as an argument, because of course God's not going to destroy someone who just turns from all their wicked ways. The only way that that would be like a sketchy event is if God knew beforehand exactly what they were going to do, that they were going to repent, and then still declare it against them, and then it still did not happen. That's how God becomes a liar. That's how the Isaiah text is invalidated when things like that happen. So Isaiah's point is not about knowledge. It's about power. God has the power to bring about what he says he's going to do. Let's listen to Enyart's response and James White's rebuttal. Sure. If it was, tell us the, the future things, we don't know the future things. So if it was a deity test from a presuppositionalist like yourself, then we would not be able to know if God was God until we got to the end. Because he said, I, I told you the end from the beginning. I didn't ask about that, sir. Let me, let me read it again. I don't think yeah. you heard me. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. How can God know what the outcome of everything that has happened in the past is if he does not have a divine decree that makes all those things meaningful. Sometimes you just got a facepalm when dealing with stuff that uh, James White says. It's just so off the wall or ridiculous. Okay, so in Isaiah, what is happening is the Jewish prophets are competing against the false prophets. And so they're not competing on like future things that are going to happen in like 20 years. They're trying to convince the people here and now that uh, God's the God of Israel and God should be worshipped and God's powerful. And so they're not saying God knows every result of everything ever to occur and all the intricate details of all how all these events work together into the far future. They're not asking about that. They're just saying, give us examples in the past of times in which you prophesied something 
which then subsequently came true. And you have to have said that before the event came true, or else your evidence is not valid. So this is a test. And how are the false prophets, how are the false gods, how are they going to win this test? What would they have to say in response to this? Would they have to go through in detail all the events in the past, you know, what someone did from their day-to-day lives and, and all everyone everywhere, and then just kind of describe in detail how it works together to get up to this point now. That's not at all what is going on here, and that's not what they're asking. That's absolutely ridiculous. They're trying to convince Israel that God is the God of Israel, that God is powerful, and so they're asking for something very explicit. They're saying, tell us the times before when you have prophesied things correctly. And here's Yahweh's counter. And this is how he counters this, proving that he is the true God. He says, the former things I declare of old, they went out from my mouth, I announced them, and suddenly I did them. So he's not like announcing every event in all of human history. He's announcing very specific prophecies. And the text goes on to say, you know, I'm doing something new now that wasn't declared before. So it's not like everything everywhere is always declared in the past. But sometimes new things that are not declared do happen. This text is not about like eternal omniscience of even the past. It's not about that. It's just about time-specific prophecies that have come true that were declared and recorded in past times. And what's the reason that Yahweh says this very explicitly? And it says it in Isaiah 48, 5, I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you might say, my idol did them, my carved image, and my metal image commanded them. So he's saying, you know what, I built this falsifiable situation where you can't just shift credit for the things that I do. So these things that are being declared from of old are things that he specifically told prophets, which were then recorded, and which then came to pass. It's not about all of eternal history from time beginning. It's not about that. So James White is off his rocker. Do you believe that Judas could have repented and not betrayed the Lord? Of course. In Jeremiah 18, God says explicitly, if uh, the wicked repent, or even if the good people repent and become wicked, I will not do what I thought to do. I will not do what I said to do. And then in Ezekiel 18, it's applied to human beings. Jeremiah 18 is about nations. Ezekiel 18 is about people. And if someone's wicked and then they become good, they're not going to get the punishment of the wicked. But if you're good and become wicked, then you'll get punished. You know, that's how these things work. This is standard biblical theology, and that's got to be our assumption when approaching any sort of situation like this. And James White is under this weird idea that uh, he's going to get a gotcha point because he claims that Jesus recreates the Isaiah deity text about Judas. And uh, I got a little cartoon that uh, is published on God is Open, and uh, it just kind of shows the dual nature of how people think about Jesus in this weird fashion that Jesus is not omniscient at times, but then all of a sudden he just like sporadically becomes omniscient. And so when Jesus says in John that I tell you these things so that uh, when it comes that you may know that I am he, James White is just like, oh, look at that. Jesus is claiming to be omniscient. But Jesus also plenty of times mentions things that he doesn't know, 
Uh, the text says that Jesus grows in wisdom and favor with God. The text says that Jesus does not know the time and the hour like God does. And so Jesus is not omniscient according to the Bible. And I even got a series that I wrote about the book of John. Even within the book of John, Jesus doesn't have this traditional omniscience that we're thinking about. And so for James White to claim that the deity test is about omniscience, it does not fit the text. Because if Jesus is not omniscient, then this deity test is definitely not about omniscience. Assuming this is a deity text, which I'm not sold on. When Jesus says, uh, he specifically cites the scripture, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Could you explain how the scripture could not be fulfilled and yet Jesus not be speaking falsehood here? So when Jesus quotes the scripture, he's actually quoting Psalms 41.9. And in context, let's read it. They say, this is King David talking. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him and he will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his hill against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. This, in context, is all about King David and King David's life. Where's the prophecy? And this frustrates quite a few atheists when they're dealing with these evangelicals like James White. And they think that these are actual prophecies. Prophecies that, like, have to come true. And you flip to the Old Testament references for these prophecies, and the context has absolutely nothing to do with anything prophetic. And so, if people wanted to, they could just flip back into the Old Testament for random sentences, pull them out, bring them into the new, and claim that they were prophecy. This is not prophecy in the sense that James White is thinking it is. Instead, in ancient Israel, it was common practice to figure out the legitimacy of something by parallelism with events in the Old Testament. So things weren't a prophecy in the sense that this predicted this event, but it was a prophecy in the sense that this kind of mirrored this other event. And by that, that's what they mean when they talk about prophecy. And it's not about predictions. If it doesn't come true, it's no big deal. It's not a prophecy. And Old Testament scholars, they just, they understand this, even the ones who are not Christian. Let's listen to Joe Hoffman. He writes, The whole notion of a text matching and of a proof text is generally foreign to our modern way of thinking. But it was central to how texts were understood 2,000 years ago. In James 2, the proof text is Genesis 15.6, but quite clearly, this does not mean that Genesis 15.6 predicts James 2, or that even James meant to indicate that Genesis 15.6 was a prophecy that came true. We know this because Genesis 15.6 isn't a prophecy at all. Rather, James is using a passage in the Old Testament to demonstrate a point. He's using a proof text. And this proof text is introduced with the Greek word pilro. So, better translations might be, this matches scripture or this accords with scripture, or even this complements scripture. Joel Hoffman concludes, More generally, we see that one common style in the New Testament is to refer back to the text of the Old Testament, matching words or phrases not for their truth value, but for their rhetorical impact. Once you start looking for it, you'll see it all over. And so Joel Hoffman, he's an, he's a, he's an Old Testament scholar. He's not a Christian, but he still understands what's going on in these texts. These texts are not giving prophecy the type that James White wants prophecy to be. That doesn't exist. And so Jesus is saying these events parallel these other events. And if they didn't parallel those other events, you know, nothing breaks in the Bible. It's not like the Bible's just going to burn up or something like that. It's nothing happens. So if that's wrong, 
Jesus is not lying. It's not anything like that. Probably wouldn't even be included in the Bible. If Judas had not done what Jesus said, then how would the disciples know that Jesus was the I Am? So it's apparent James White is coming to this John 13 text, and he's thinking that this is a deity claim on behalf of Jesus, where there's nothing in the text really to support that except for the Greek words ego eimi. When do the Jews ever use that of God? Yahweh means I am. And uh, when is ego eimi used of God within the Bible? It just is not. It's, it's not a proof text for being the I am. That phrase is used plenty of places in the Bible by people who are not Jesus. And the one text that uh, James White might try to turn to is where Jesus says, before Moses was, I am. So a lot better take on this passage rather than the Calvinist interpretation is that Jesus is not claiming to be the I am in that passage either. Jesus is claiming to be part of the divine council in Psalms 82. Jesus is claiming to pre-exist Abraham. That's why they try to stone him, not this claim that ego me is the name of Yahweh. We don't get that. That's just made up. So all of James White's other questions I've already answered, talking about the cross, if it's a fixed event or not. But let's just listen to this exchange between Enyart and White. And White really shows his intellectual dishonesty, his double standards for passages of the Bible, and he just shows how hostile he is to common sense and reason. Let's listen. Because when prophecies of warning fail, God rejoices. Is this a prophecy of warning, sir? Yeah, it is. Where? Judas, you're, it's going to be worse for you than if you had never been born. Uh, I think what he says is what you are going to do, yes. do quickly. I don't yes. see a warning in there. Well, there, prophecies, and James, you should realize this, prophecies repeatedly go unfulfilled, and God says that they go unfulfilled, and he's proud about it because I, it shows his mercy and love. I, I don't uh, believe any such thing, but be that as it may. So well, Jesus, gives, Jesus gives a specific statement, yeah, and he identifies the individual, and he bases his self-revelation of his own deity yeah. on these words, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, and the only answer you have to that is that, well, it's like Jonah? God identified men by name and said they would serve him forever, Aaron's four sons. And then two of them he killed and sent them to hell because of how wicked they were. And we still know that God is God, even though what he said, naming them by name, that they would serve me as priest forever, and it didn't happen because if you know God, you're on the okay. same page. So James White is animate that there are no conditionals in the prophecy of Judas. There are no conditionals in the prophecy of Nineveh. You you just have a complete double standard. You have zero rationality. You don't want to listen to common sense. You don't want to listen to very natural understandings of the text and what's going on. God gives eternal prophecies to specific people, to specific houses, and then revokes them based on what happens. This is common fare for the Bible, and James White wants to ignore all this in favor of his Platonism. We are out of time for today's episode. If you like this episode, uh, feel free to comment on the God is Open webpage or on the Facebook companion page, God is Open. Thank you for listening.